Hi there, and welcome to the Skylight Books author reading series. If you'd like to learn more about us and our many upcoming author events, please visit skylightbooks.com, where you can browse our inventory, buy books, and join our Friends with Benefits Club. You can also follow us on Twitter, Tumblr, and Facebook. To speak to a real live bookseller like me, please call 323-660-1175. Thanks for your support, and enjoy. Okay, well, first, let's give a big thank you to the people here at Skylight for hosting us. Um, So I think that you guys all know who we are, but for those of you who don't, we're a unique multi-genre writing program, and our students will be reading works in progress. The The purpose of this reading is to start a conversation, so please stay and talk about the work read here tonight while eating cookies and buying some books. Our first reader is Autumn. McAlpin. She is a screenwriting concentration and will be reading the opening scene from her thesis, A Few Minor Distractions. She is inspired by Anne Lamont, and one of the best writing tips she's heard is, write what you know, what you realize may surprise you. Fun fact about Autumn is that she has four children and seven siblings, and they are her best friends and the source of her material. Okay, thank you so much, and I want to introduce my wonderful actors, who have literally dropped into the scene within the past 24 hours, for the most part. So, um, Christina Wolfgram, a familiar face, will be playing Megan. Um, Charlie Brown will be playing Elliot, a 10, 11-year-old boy, 11, he's 11 in this version. Yes, no, he's 8. Actually, he's 8 in this version, sorry. (laughs) It went through a rewrite recently. Um, Stephanie Abraham is um, playing um, Emerson, the daughter. Um, Bob... She's going to be right up here. Bob, we recruited Bob. Bob is playing a four-year-old. So we're, Bob, if you want to stand, if you want to stand right here. No, actually right back here, Bob. You're in, you're in the back seat of the minivan. Come over here. Come over here. And then we have my good friend Jordan McKittrick is playing Joey. And the very familiar one and only MG Lord will be playing our notary. So. Our, the notary. The notary. Studying how to do that so I can have a job. (laughs) (laughs) Not that hard. It's a minor test and it's steady work. (laughs) All right. On that note, we will begin. So, a few minor distractions. Opening scene. Fade in. Exterior strip mall. Day. Upscale. A minivan is parked outside of mailboxes, etc. Inside the minivan, Megan Lang, 32, sits in the driver's seat. Yoga pants, tired ponytail. She holds a stack of papers, pounds junior mints. Behind Megan, Elliot, 8, plays Sudoku. Next to him, Emerson, 12, yanks off her headphones. Mom, we are so late. We're always late. I'm going to miss guitar. A pair of legs dangle from the sunroof. They belong to Cole, 4. He's quite possibly the cutest kid on earth, and it's the only thing that's kept him alive. Mom, Cole's kicking me. Get down! Cole, stop! A rusted 1980s Jeep Wagoneer careens into the lot. Joey's here. Finally. Okay, Cole, get down. Stop kicking your sister. Emerson, you know what to do, right? Yes. Should take five minutes. Cole drops in from the roof. That was awesome! Joey, late 20s, sun-kissed frame, electric eyes, jumps out of the Jeep and slides into Megan's passenger seat. Hey, Uncle Joey! I was the tallest guy in the universe! Cool little man. Hey guys. Hi. Hey. Hi Megan. Here are the papers. Nice ride. Black this time. None of your secret service garden. Yeah, listen, we're late. So where's the notoriety? The notary's inside and I'm our 45. She hands him the papers he quickly flips through. What the? I'm not signing this. Yeah, you have to. 200 bucks a month in child support. 200 bucks won't even cover Deborah's snacks. This is bullshit. Megan watches him as he stares out the window. You want Camille to Craigslist your record collection? She can't. Those are mine. Fine. Don't sign. And Camille will take you to court and you'll lose. And you'll end up paying her legal fees plus your own. Nobody paid me when I stayed home with her. Joey kicks the dashboard and gets out. Emerson, watch the boys. Megan slips Emerson a screwdriver from the console and motions to Joey's Jeep. Remember, front and back. Inside the mailboxes, etc., day, Megan and Joey face a no-nonsense notary. Sign your full legal name here, Joseph and Camille. I need your ID 
and a fingerprint. I'm not Camille, I'm his sister. Uh-huh. <laughs> Camille needs to sign these two in front of a notary. Well, she's in Vegas and we're overnighting them. Joseph, I need another signature. Joey pops bubble wrap at a merchandise booth. Sir, I need you to sign. Joey, stop. Sign the papers. He signs. Megan looks out the window to where Emerson gives her a thumbs up. I'll be right back. I need to check on the kids. Emerson meets Megan at the door, hands her a set of license plates. Megan returns, slides the plates to the notary. Can you flip these in? Those are my plates. They were. Now they're Camille's. That car is all I've got. She doesn't want the car, but you can pay for your own plates. It was all in the papers that you didn't read. You're my sister. Yeah. Well, I'm also Deborah's aunt. That'll be 4814. Joey looks to Megan. Seriously? Megan throws down a 50 and leaves. Exterior parking lot day. Megan's car shakes with the kids fighting. I don't know what you're supposed to do, Joey, but I'm done cleaning up your message. I'm not asking you to. Really? Who do you think just paid for your drive-through divorce? You're pathetic. Oh, step down. Sell- Look at you, sellout. Sellout? You had all the talent. Yeah, well, I have people you gone all who the I'm way. responsible you for. You for are this? going like to the party that you pretended is. He nods at the commotion in her car. Megan slowly shakes her head. For a second, I almost believe you. Devereaux's better off without you. She gets in her car and peels out of the parking lot. Joey throws down the bubble wrap. He gets in his Jeep and drives away. The roll of bubble wrap unravels down the sidewalk. Interior minivan driving day. Megan glances in the rearview mirror, wipes the tears from her face. Over black, titles, a few minor distractions. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Actors, take a bow. Thank you so much. Thank you for that. And our next reader is Brianna J.L. Smike. She is a fiction and nonfiction writer and will be reading a fictional piece called Freshwater. She is inspired by her fellow MPW classmates and teachers, including Janet Fitch, who advised her, write every day, even if only for 10 minutes. Usually the 10 minutes will turn into more. Fun fact, Brianna thinks boyhood is overrated and will be irrationally upset if it wins best picture. Thank you, guys. Um, All right, this is fresh water. Clive swept his hand through the dried delta bed, rubbing a few specks of rusting rock between his gloved fingers. He looked out at the mighty dust mites, as he liked to call the solar-powered robots which speckled the planet for miles. When, in an effort to save their dying program, NASA's engineers discovered they could duplicate water molecules by adding earth water to the ice crystal, his crystals his flock of machines now mined on Mars, Clive pulled in every favor he had to get the job on the project. He hadn't worried about ending up alone on a rusting planet or leaving his wife Kathy behind. He'd seen the mission as his one chance to prove he could operate outside the world of academia. The night he'd made the breakthrough with the suit, the one that now kept him and the other overseers alive, he'd taken Kathy out to dinner. His skin tingled with the velocity of the project as he explained that lining the suit with a thin layer of water would absorb microscopic Martian dust and reflect the UV radiation that bombarded the atmosphereless planet. When he'd finished, he beamed at Kathy, awaiting her praise, but the diner's vibrant conversations and clanging utensils created a sound bubble around their silent table. Kathy took the pause in their conversation to bring up the unpublished papers and students he'd already abandoned at Boston University, as well as everything else he was leaving behind, including her. He tried to steer the conversation back to his accomplishment and the now impending seven-year stay on Mars made possible by his discovery. But she'd silenced his celebration of self. In case you forgot, Clive, I'm a scientist too, and I'm working on feasible sustainability solutions here on Earth, not trying to take a bunch of dog robots to Mars. She'd spent the next hour lecturing him about her award-winning energy generation theory. He'd been tempted to remind her that her accolades had been for ideas, not actions. But he let her rattle off her data, instead dreaming about being alone in Mars's silent abyss. But on these lonely days in the Delta, enveloped in the ochre horizon, Clive missed his wife. He still had another 1,095 days to remember all the ways he'd loved and hated her. 
The last time he'd seen Kathy, she'd stroked his arm, saying, you make sure that suit does what it's supposed to and bring yourself home. She shook her head, stoic as ever, commanding the tear that swelled in the corner of her eye not to fall. At first, the energy in their bi-monthly video calls seemed proof that the distance and new developments were just the stimulation their relationship needed. Eager to break the two-week silences, Clive would regale Kathy with the marvels of trekking the red planet, telling her he blew her kisses every time Earth rose and set over the horizon. The smile she gave him in return for becoming a husband she could brag about to her peers was the same one she greeted him with countless times in the MIT quad. Back in their undergrad years, she'd practically knock over the other students as she ran up to him so she could rhapsodize about the details of her latest experiment or spend a few moments walking arm in arm with him before his next class. Though the pull of Earth's gravity seemed to grow stronger with their relationship recharged, the novelty of his, his adventures soon wore off, and after four years of distance, their conversations were increasingly tense and stagnant. In the last few months, Kathy had started mentioning her coworker Steve and all the wonderful ideas he had about current events Clive knew nothing about. Clive had met Steve once at a Byron Byron fundraiser he'd attended with Kathy. She didn't like the way the guy's arm lingered around his wife then, and he didn't like the way her voice revved when she spoke about him now. And there was something in their last call, in the way Kathy had signed off, finally letting the tear roll down her cheek, as if in reaction to some unspoken release that made Clive realize that surviving another three years on the hospital planet was no longer the most pressing of his worries. Great, thank you. Our third reader is Anna Louise Carter. She's a fiction writer who is inspired by Flannery O'Connor because she wrote about things that matter with great imagination and excellent storytelling. She is excited about the options and opportunities available for writers today because they are less dependent on print publishing to get their names out there. A fun fact about Anna Louise is that she played rugby in college. (laughs) Sorry if you were expecting someone bigger. So this summer, my mother calls and tells me that she and my father are driving south to visit and are bringing all my school stuff with them. I should explain that I kept everything obsessively as a child. Every September, my mother bought large Tupperware-like containers that slid under our beds, and my brother and I would fill them throughout the school year with art projects and grammar tests and letters from the pen pals we met at writing camps. As we got older, the arts and crafts were less frequent, and we grew less interested in memorializing our lives. So the bins would last for two years, maybe three, before they were full and banished to the attic. In the early years, my brother and I would usually compare notes before the containers disappeared, sifting through each other's things and exploring the memories the other was choosing to collect. I can't remember when that particular practice died out. My parents have begun the process my grandmother just ended of slowly emptying the house of everything that makes it a home, beginning with the attic and working their way down through the bedrooms, the office, the kitchen, the garage. First bicycles, sleds, dollhouses, later seasonal decor and bakeware, then finally rugs, couches, and tables. The goal, it seems, at least in my family, is to end up possessing as little as humanly possible at time of death. The winner ends up in some modified version of a bachelor pad or college dorm room, along with the satisfaction of knowing one's children won't have to clean up much after one has kicked the bucket. No one wants that. Much too gloomy. Better to do it now. Then when we die, there's only the bed, a few sets of target dishes, and an overripe banana to deal with. We've become accustomed to this behavior from my grandmother. Every holiday and family get-together, she'll gesture to one or more of the grandchildren and pull them aside into a pantry or closet or back room to show them a smorgasbord of unwanted items she smuggled in like so many knockoff Rolexes. Only if you want it, understand. Of course, Grandma. Thank you, Grandma. And we end up taking the 1970s desk lamps and the beaded Alaskan slippers to use for several years or donate to the goodwill or pass on to someone else because it seems easier than saying no. So when my mother tells me over the phone they are bringing down my bins, I groan inwardly because here we go all over again. When they arrive, we spend the weekend in the sun. They're from the Northwest and hungry for heat. So we eat every meal outside, go to the beach twice, drink wine under the stars. And when they leave, I have eight large plastic bins staring me in the face. So much unwanted history. 
I pick a sunny Saturday afternoon to go through them all and do it out of doors, close to the garbage and far from unlit corners where ghosts and nostalgia flourish. Third grade math quizzes and high school essays and seventh grade geography notes. Apparently as a child I imagined that in 20 years I'd want to know the capital of Colombia and my week-by-week progress in learning fractions. Turns out I don't. I keep some of it, a few papers and some letters from my mother, but most of it I trash. I don't want people to have to come through my things when I'm gone either. I guess the bug has got me too. At some point, I come across a giant watercolor my brother made in second grade that somehow made it into my bin by mistake. I recognize it because my mother had framed this particular picture and hung it in the hallway for many years. I stared at it for a while, trying to decide what to do. My brother lives a thousand miles away and is decidedly unsentimental. I can't imagine him wanting it. I also have a small home with limited space for things like 24 by 36 inch framed second grade watercolors. So in the end, I throw it away. It is not a particularly pleasant day. Turning over that much of my past all at once is too poignant to be enjoyable. But I'm able to condense quite a bit and keep the remainder in one much more compact Tupperware-like bin. I still find myself thinking about that picture, though, wondering if I should have called my brother and at least asked. He's hard to get a hold of, but maybe this time he would have answered. Hello, he would have said. What's going on? You won't believe it, I would have answered. But I'm out here on a Saturday afternoon digging through all this old school stuff, and I found the watercolor you did in Ms. Dennison's class, the one with the wildflowers in the blue vase. Do you remember? Mom hung it in the hall in a peach-colored plastic frame. And he'd pause and then maybe say, "Mm Mm-hmm. Do you want it? I'd ask. But I don't know what the voice on the other end of the line would have said. So I lie in bed and think of the watercolor, painted on a rainy day in Oregon 25 years ago, now lying in a landfill in Los Angeles, along with other artifacts of my childhood. And I regret it, and know I don't need to regret it, and find myself regretting it still. Thank you. Thank you. Our fourth reader is Melinda Hensley. She is a fiction writer and is inspired by the engrossing stories of Hayao Miyazaki. I think that's right. Uh, The best piece of writing advice comes from her husband, Jonathan, who said, inspiration doesn't matter. Work does. You're a writer. That's your job, so go to work every day. You don't see scientists only solving formulas or construction workers only building bridges when they're inspired, right? One fact about her is that she loves to swing dance, especially Lindy style. (laughs) Okay. Um, So tonight I'm going to read a section of my thesis project, which is a novel that is very much in progress. Um, It's a very long progress that I'm enjoying far more than I originally thought. Um, But the main... The plot of my novel revolves around Sarah Ames, who is a journalist and a single mother living in a small Indiana town. She is asked to cover the story of a missing teen, Clara, while dealing with the recent death of her daughter. In this section, Sarah has just gotten the call from the police chief who believes they have found Clara's body. Officer Armstrong said they'd found her in an abandoned mine pit on the outskirts of town. As Sarah's orange Ford chugged down the gravel road, her mind wandered. She'd been driving for less than 15 minutes, and houses had become sparse. Though Midland wasn't the busiest town, the loneliness she felt after leaving the city limits was still surprising. There were patches of woods, tangled thickets fat with webbing and thorns. But in a place full of life, it still felt empty, listless in the early breeze. The thick woods had made searching for Clara difficult. Sarah had performed interviews with many members of the search party, and they'd all had the bitter sentiment about the forest. It was hard to comb through the brambles and not tear the skin, they had said. Or worse, several members of the crew had contracted poison ivy. One had been rushed to the hospital after being bitten by a copperhead lurking in a trickling creek bed. Sometimes the crew thought they'd found a pathway, but only ended up buried deeper in doubt. As the town dissolved behind her, the sun peeked over the thickets, the shrugging, blobby treetips dark against the yawning sky. She turned onto another unlabeled roads, woods breaking into square mile after mile of high wheat. The goldenrod shifted in the breeze, muted wind chimes, a hushing sound. The land had gotten hilly, carved into a mineable form. Small, water-filled quarries slumbered in the valleys where all the limestone and coal had been taken long before. There was a dull ache in the back of her brain, 
a tinge of disappointment that they had found Clara, but a missing person for a month and a half was a situation that never ended well. Looking ahead, Sarah saw the squad of cop cars, a smattering of dominoes spilled on the side of the road. An ambulance was also parked nearby, doors flung open and two paramedics sitting on the step. They must have really found something, Sarah thought, though whatever was out here would have no use for an ambulance. She pulled the truck over when she reached them, scuttling on the rocks and throwing a few into the air with her tires. She grabbed her canvas bag and got out of the truck. The clunky pantax thumped against her chest as she moved towards Armstrong, who stood near the road, away from the group of officers. That was quick, Armstrong said, his boxy frame turning from officer to officer, each of them looking like a stuffed bluebird on a wire. We just sent the diving team back down to get the body out. How did you find it, she asked. Sarah left her notepad in the pocket of her canvas bag. There was a time to start taking notes, and this was definitely not it. Establishing rapport was an understatement. We'd started searching every strip mine we could find, he said, his husky voice filtered by a gray bottle brush mustache. After a while, looking under bushes just seems a little too hopeful. Sarah placed a hand on Armstrong's arm, unable to reach his shoulder. Maybe it's not her. Maybe it's not even a person. A a hunter could have dumped an animal carcass out here. We'll have to see, he said. With things like this, someone's always always going to end up getting blowback. It's a lose-lose situation. I know how that goes. You've done a great job so far, he said. I know looking for a missing person is a new case for all of us. It was true. In the past 25 years, only one other person had gone missing, and she was classified as a runaway, picked up by Sarah's mother, a local juvenile probation officer. The town operated with that naive sense of laxness. If someone wasn't home for dinner, they must be staying at a friend's house or maybe driving through the countryside. No one ever thought to call the police. A deep, sloshing sound came from the hole. Armstrong ran over to the edge with Sarah trailing behind. When she squeezed herself between the officers, she saw two men in diving suits bobbing at the surface, their goggles fogged around the edges. One of them pulled a mask from his face, a small suction sound slipping out. We found it, he said. The other bobbed back down again. Then something else broke the surface of the muddy water. A tube, a large brown tube with a silver band around the end. It just looks like a log, Sarah started, but why would anyone dump that out? Then the rest of it emerged. The column fell limp as it was hoisted from the hole. Carpet. It was a rolled up tube of carpet, and the edges had been wrapped with silver bands of duct tape. The tan fibers had been stained with algae, a green, sickly, sallow casing. Jesus, one of the officers mumbled as the cylinder bled onto the dry ground, sending pools of muddled water around the officer's shoes. Sarah stepped back. She watched as Armstrong sheathed a knife from his belt and bent down next to the tube, his blue pants stained at the knees. His knife cut through the tape on each end, the waterlog binding, not snapping, but lurching as it was clipped. He grabbed one end and slowly began to unroll it. Sarah watched his fingers. They were careful not to touch what might be inside. As he unfurled it, Sarah saw the hand peel away from the inner casing. It looked bloated alabaster white with blips of purple pores scattered across it like some poisonous spore. It was a larger version of a child's jarred frog, an amphibious limb left to soak too long. The skin expanded, folding over a small silver charm bracelet that had been corroded with dust. Most of the nails had fallen off, but the thumb remained, lacquered in a haunting pink polish. Sarah covered her mouth with one hand, and Armstrong recoiled. It had to be her. She felt sickness flood her mouth, a taste like pennies. Armstrong quickly rolled the carpet back up. One officer lifted a camera to his eye, the camera whining as the shutter flickered. Another began sketching the surrounding area, the hole, the tube. Sarah watched his pencil skid across the, ska- uh, across the page, and it looked more harmless that way, just a rendering, not the sealed body that lay slumped at their feet. Both officers looked ashamed to be doing anything but grieving. Sarah knew that feeling all too well protocol could seem insensitive that way but it was all that could be done then Sarah wondered would they reveal it here probably not insisting to keep it away from fingerprints and contaminants but eventually yes they'd have to unroll the rest of her would she even look like herself would the face everyone remembered be just a figment that hung in storefronts watching patrons as they passed asking them to find her Sarah Armstrong said Meet us at Dr. Bender's office, and we can talk there. Somebody get me a bag. 
An officer carried a black body bag over and unzipped it as he set it on the ground. One side, then the other, of the carpet roll was placed into the bag, and then it was zipped, enclosing the body in a dark cocoon. Water seeped through the zipper as they lifted it. Did the water contain her molecules? Sarah wondered. Were there pieces of her leaking, dribbling onto the earth? Were they losing her drop by drop? Was she a piece of the entire quarry she'd be sunk into, flecks of her DNA floating through the deep, feeding the algae? And the bag was carried to the ambulance, a trail of liquid in tow. Not another sound. Thank you. Our last student reader is Stephanie Abraham. She is a nonfiction concentration who will be reading tonight from her thesis, a memoir called Dear Cub. She is inspired by the work of Naomi Shihab Nye, and her favorite piece of advice about writing is working writers are working because they are writing. Um, her fun fact is, although she hates, has hated dogs for decades, she is now the owner of a golden doodle puppy <laughs> and is in love with all four-legged creatures. Hi there. Thanks for coming out. Thank you, Skylight, for hosting us. Um, so this, as, she, as Sarah said, this is part of my memoir, which is about choosing to be child-free. Um, so at this point in the story, the narrator believes that she still will have a child, and she's writing a letter to that child who has not yet been conceived. Dear Cub, December 23, 2003 marks an important milestone in your life. It's the day your parents met. It happened at Stephen's Steakhouse, a restaurant and banquet, house, banquet hall in the City of Commerce, which turns into a salsa club several nights a week. It's dirty carpets, dingy walls, and the original bar stools from when it opened 60 years ago make the place a real dive. But if you dance salsa in L.A., it's the place to go. Two rooms get packed with sweaty dancers of all ages, backgrounds, and skill levels, all moving to the beats of two different DJs. My friend Maria and I had been going to Stevens every Sunday night from 9 to midnight for two years, ever since we started taking classes at Let's Dance in Alhambra. Maria was busy that night, so I decided to go out alone, knowing I'd run into the usual suspects. When I arrived... I noticed a six-foot-tall man dancing with a woman at least short, a foot shorter than him. Most dancers find such a drastic height difference difficult because it inhibits the communication that comes through tension in the arms and hands. But those two spun in sync as if shoulder to shoulder. The man wore tennis shoes, jeans, a navy blue Babe Ruth t-shirt, and a baseball cap. I admired him from across the room. He was the opposite of the dancers we called hotshots, who wore slim-fit dress shirts, black leather pants, and white shoes with pointy toes. I refuse to dance with them. They spin women 800 times in a row. They dip and drop us and then catch us at the neck with their heel. That's if they don't miss. And then kick us back up to continue dancing. Aside from the danger and their insatiable thirst for attention, they could care less about musicality, which requires being present and makes the music come alive. Nothing's better than listening to the distinct rhythms of each salsa song and adjusting your movement in order to allow the African, European, and Latin sounds inspire your body. The Yankee fan's musicality flowed. Watching him dance made me smile. It reminded me of why I love salsa, people connecting with each other and living in the moment, becoming visual instruments of the music itself. About a half hour later, I stood against the wall chatting with one of the regulars. Up walked my friend Luis. We had met at the studio two years earlier, but because I'm five inches taller than him, we had never danced, a fact that I like to poke him about. This guy, I pointed to Luis dramatically, he never asks me to dance. But before I could continue, he cut me off saying, bailamos, let's dance. Okay, I answered, eyebrows raised from the surprise. 
He took my hand and we squeezed through the crowd to an open spot on the carpet since the wooden floor was packed. Luis led me in the, in the basic step, forward and backward 16 counts, in two crossbody leads for another 16, and then into a double spin. When I twirled out and stepped backwards, I saw the Yankee fan move in without hesitation. Luis stood in my peripheral vision on my left facing me. Then I realized Luis had passed me to him. Had they set this up? The tall stranger put his right arm under my left, placing his right hand on my left shoulder blade, the proper way to lead me in order to have steady control and not injure my kidneys or back. As he guided me across the carpet, I could have danced with my eyes closed. He communicated the next move so clearly. At 5'9", my body fit perfectly into his dancer's hold, like a piece to a puzzle. That elegance ended abruptly when he looked down to turn me and my nose collided into the bill of his baseball cap. I stopped moving and covered my stinging face with my hand. I'm so sorry, are you okay, he asked, turning his cap backwards and inspecting my nose. I shook off the pain and nodded. Just as we started dancing again, the music stopped. Why had the DJ played the world's shortest song? He apologized again, thanked me for the dance, and shook my hand. Bear, he said, introducing himself. And Stephanie, I responded. Nice to meet you, he said as he walked away, grabbing the towel hanging from his back pocket and wiping away the sweat on his forehead. What a cute white boy, I thought, watching him stroll to the other side of the room. After a few more songs, I went to check my burning face in the bathroom. Our, crush had, our crash had cut me. A red and inflamed scratch ran down the right side of my nose. No wonder my sweat had made it sting. When I went back in, Bear stood just inside the doorway. When he saw me, he extended his hand. I placed mine in his and he led me to the dance floor. This time we had the whole song to ourselves. The drums worked in tandem with the trumpets and other brass instruments. Bear marked our movements in time with their rhythms, bringing me in close and spinning me out fast, leading confidently and with poise. As our bodies melded with the melodies of the music, it hit me. Dancing with him felt like home. I had spent years searching for that sense of familiarity, and I had finally found it. Cub, I didn't want that song to end, ever. Basking in the warm feeling, I blurted out, where have you been all my life? Since he kept dancing, I could tell that the blaring music prevented him from hearing me. Swept away by the moment, I asked again, only louder and freer, in Spanish, assuming that he wouldn't understand me. Donde has estado toda mi vida, I screamed. I meant it more as a declaration than a query. When he did a triple take, moving his head back and forth slowly and blinking at me each time, I knew he had understood. The song ended. He grabbed his towel again and pointed to the bar. My question hadn't scared him off. I nodded, accepting his invitation. Thank you. So uh, thank you to all of our student readers tonight. Um, you guys were great. Um, we're going to move on to our faculty reader for the evening. Um, so our faculty reader is Dinah Lenny. Dinah is the author of a collection of essays, The Object Parade, and Bigger Than Life, A Murder, A Memoir, published as part of the American Live series at the University of Nebraska Press. Her essays and reviews have appeared in a wide range of publications and anthologies, including the New York Times, the Los Angeles Times, Agni, Creative Nonfiction, The Kenyan Review, Plowshares, Triquarterly, and Brevity.com. Dinah is the senior nonfiction editor for the Los Angeles Review of Books and, and serves as core faculty for the Bennington Writing Series, the Rainier Writing Workshop, and in the Masters of Professional Writing program at the University of Southern California. Hi. Thank you all for coming. Wow. Thank you all for coming. Um, first of all, thanks to Skylight. 
Thanks to all of you. And what a, I'm, I'm looking, I, I wrote down the name so I wouldn't forget. I'm in such good company tonight. So thanks to Autumn and Brianna and Casey and Mindy and Stephanie. Uh, that was really fun, wonderful reading. Um, and I, uh, I, so I'm reading from this book again, you guys, because it's, it's coming out in paperback, and I feel like I have to, you know, put my best foot forward. And, um, and so you, most of you, many of you know the drill, that the Object Parade is a, is a series of essays that sort of add up to a memoir, and they're all written from an object. Some object has prompted all of them. And I was trying to um, think about uh, which ones I should read tonight and what I could read to those of you who have heard me read endlessly from this book. Um, and I realized that Violet is here, and I've never read about my dogs. So I guess we're sort of on a theme. So I thought I would start with, oh, but you know what? I, I also, I brought you guys a poem. Um, I found this wonderful, I brought two poems. I'm only going to read you one. I found this wonderful poem. Um, it's by Pat Schneider. Bridget, do you know that po this poet? Patch. Pa Pat. <laughs> Pat. Pat Schneider. Um, somebody sent me this poem, and I just loved it. It's called, you know, objects show up all over the place. They really do. Casey read about an object tonight. There was a baseball cap in Stephanie's piece. There was a minivan. I mean, we had some objects tonight. So anyway, this is called The Patience of Ordinary Things. It is a kind of love, is it not? How the cup holds the tea. How the chair stands sturdy and four square. How the floor receives the bottoms of shoes or toes. How soles of feet know where they're supposed to be. I've been thinking about the patience of ordinary things. How clothes wait respectfully in closets and soap dries quietly in the dish and the towels drink the wet from the skin of the back and the lovely repetition of stairs. And what is more generous than a window. Isn't that great? I love the lovely repetition of stairs. Hey, um, MG and Prince and Bridget, thank you for coming tonight. Um, so, and, and all of you. Okay, so this piece, this essay is called Collar. I've really never read this before. So this is, you know, maybe, maybe I should have a little drink. <laughs> Hold on a second. How are you all? Yeah? Good. Tomorrow, Christina and Kelsey are going to alphabetize my books. I'm so excited. Not tomorrow, Sunday, right? Sunday. Sunday. I'm so excited about that. Okay. Collar. This circle of dirty red canvas and nylon hangs from a hook on a mirror in the bedroom alongside a couple of baseball caps and a plummy scarf. An inch wide, a quarter inch thick, buckled on the first of four holes, heavy duty and oversized. Fred brought it home the day we left her at the vet to be cremated and retrieved in a box a week or so later. And here's the thing. It smells of her, of Roxy, our first dog. A chocolate lab with a narrow head, the last of her litter, so tiny when Fred picked her up at the Labrador farm in Sierra Madre that she nearly fell between the seats and the beast, our old wagon, before he got her home. This is her collar, removed 11 years later and still faintly sour. That odor, greasy and rotten, foul and sweet. It used to stick to my fingers, I remember. Poor thing, she suffered in the heat. And I suffered too. Held my nose and made faces and begged Fred to bathe her, which he did. Soaked her with a cold hose in the front yard and lathered her up in the street. She stood there, head hanging, feet planted in the gutter, braced against the water, rushing down Princeton Avenue, facing downhill, and in spite of our efforts to turn her around so as to keep the soap from running into her eyes. After he dried her off, he'd tie the towel around her head like a babushka, and she'd pose for a moment, forlorn, bewildered, as if straight off the boat, from the shtetl. A William Wegman plus-size model. <laughs> then she shook off the towel and shook herself out, super dog in reverse. Revived and revved up, she ran circles in a frenzy, spraying water this way and that, although it took her hours to really dry. So thick and oily was her coat. But this collar... 
coated with dust inside the buckle and three tags hanging from a ring near the last notch. The first, tinted orange from the Los Feliz Small Animal Hospital. Next, her permanent license from annual re animal regulation, City of LA. And the third, a perfect disc worn smooth and dull and difficult to read. Our last name and address on one side, Roxy. The X rubbed to nothing but a backward slash and our phone number on the other. Roxy. How do we pick her name? Now I am tired of diminutives, of doggies. Tired of my own voice shouting for this old boy, Sully, Fred's choice, who will loiter and roll in something dead if he gets the chance. And this pup, Elfie, short for Elphaba, the name with which she came to us, who runs ahead into the tall grass only to reappear with foxtails buried between her tufted toes and that extra hair hanging off of her ears like Paeus. But Roxy, we came up with it together because we liked Sting, for one thing. And because we didn't have children, not yet, and it wasn't a name we'd have held in reserve for a girl. And how did we decide we wanted a dog in the first place? It had something to do with growing up with them, both of us, and with buying the house, our first, something to do with us as newly married, with three bedrooms, two baths, and a big backyard, but only a couple of toes in that water, not all four feet, not yet. And something to do with announcing that we really and truly lived in California. Weren't going home, back east, that is, anytime soon. Fred, fixed as he was on the breed, combed the classifieds and located a litter less than an hour to the east. No question he'd come home with a dog. How do you visit a bunch of puppies and not bring one home? Although by the time he got there, only Roxy was left. Who knows why? The smallest, we figured later on. Plus, her head wasn't as square as most, a bit pointy in the nose, Roxy was, such as the privilege of pedigree, features that end in a point. She came with a rag, a piece of burgundy towel, her security blanket. And until she was trained, she lived in the old bonus room at the bottom of the house, now Fred's office, now carpeted with floor-to-ceiling bookshelves, a freestanding globe, an oversized desk made of pine, posters on the walls, as well as, as a couple of framed black-and-white photos by Margaret Bork White, inherited, home to complicated communication systems, telephones and computers and fax machines, but back then it was empty and lined with linoleum. Fred would take her down at the end of the day and sing her to sleep. I'd hear him crooning from our bedroom on the floor above. Something in the way she moves attracts me like no other puppy. <laughs> and there are puppies I remember. <laughs> Upstairs by the fireplace stood a white stone pig with empty eyes that I'd found in a junk shop on La Cienega. And Roxy spent her evenings lying beside the staring blind thing, absently licking its rough, no-color hooves. She thinks it's her mother, my motherless husband would say. She thinks no such thing. She doesn't know what it is. She doesn't recognize it by sight. It doesn't smell or feel like a mother to her. It's probably salty, I said. But I couldn't dissuade him. Most dogs are dogs, a friend once told me, but Roxy is a duchess. Was it true? Was Roxy some kind of royalty in our midst? The dog who once shot all over the backseat of a car? Never did get it completely cleaned up, attracted flies for two summers running before we traded it in. This dog. <laughs> this one who quietly went through a wheel of brie on the general's coffee table. While ten of us ate our soup and salad on the other side of the room, the cur who systematically cleaned my kitchen floors with her tongue, where is the dignity in any of that? But however single-minded single and insatiable, noble she was, also a comfort, endlessly patient when we finally had a baby, and then another, when each of them jerked on her ears and her tail and climbed over her back, pulled her legs out from under her, ever stoic, the dog with the soap in her eyes. I never heard her growl, not at them, not once. She'd get tired, those Labrador hips, and plop down in the middle of Go Fish or Monopoly. But she was, for the longest time, affable and game, up for a run or a chase or to laze in the grass, to wait for the muse from under Fred's desk, to cheer me up from under the Steinway. And if one or the other of us retreated in anger or hurt, it wouldn't be long before we'd hear the clicking of her nails across the floors, the jingle of her, the tags on her collar, and then feel the nudge of her nose behind the knee or in the crook of an elbow, evidence of her concern, her inclination to commiserate should we imagine ourselves lonely or alone. 
Eventually, of course, she started to gray around the muzzle, was less inclined if we weren't evidently in distress to follow us from room to room. Eventually, it got so she slept away most of the day as time went on, lame and creaky, riddled with lumps and bumps the way old dogs get. She began to seem not only tired, but listless, not just resigned, but down in the dumps, at which point we decided to find her some company. This time, wisened up and politically correct, we weren't even thinking about breeds. We adopted, an ab- we adopted an abandoned mutt with soft ears and big eyes, a beagle-dingo mix with a red brindle coat. Fred named him Sullivan, Sully for short. The first days were harder than we'd have predicted. There we were cavorting upstairs with our adorable pup, and the old girl wouldn't deign to join the party. Instead, she skulked down the spiral staircase and moped under the piano. What betrayal was this, she half groaned, half sighed. How could we have done this to her, she said with her eyes, before she turned them to the wall. But towards the end of the week, she came round, hobbled up the stairs one step at a time, one paw meeting the other like a crone with a cane, to check out the action. Within days, we were coming home to the two of them grooming each other like an old married couple. Geez, Fred would say, get a room. (laughs) Peace then for a while. That is, after Sully went through two sets of Venetian blinds and all the upholstery in the living room. Roxy, watching ruefully, no doubt, from the middle of the killum, her head between her paws. You're going to get it, she'd have told him if she could. On the day that Sully went for sofa cushions, the feathers swirling and drifting out at us when we came home and opened the front door, Fred took out the vacuum while I sat on the stoop and sobbed with Roxy's wet nose in my neck. (laughs) Roxy, solace, solace, Roxy. But she wasn't my dog, not really. She was Fred's all along. Would I have saved this collar? I don't know and her ashes in a tin on the shelf in his office downstairs, wouldn't I have scattered them by now? Not up to me, thank goodness. Collar and dog both just where they belong. Meanwhile, Sully's grown old and white-faced, has lumps of his own, one runny eye, and a permanent growth, black and misshapen under the other from some old wound that never healed as it should have. And if Roxy broke us in, Fred and I taught us how to worry and love and laugh and grieve. It's Sully who raised up Eliza and Jake, who spends his days in her room and nights in his. And it must be acknowledged, Roxy was unflappable, yes, but Sully is smart. Multi-talented, in fact. He opens screen doors all by himself. And if we neglect to take him to the park, he hides our shoes in protest. He's as fast as any squirrel, can catch a ball on the fly, and Sully can sing. Gladly, he followed Eliza out to the decks to practice back when she played the alto sax. With gusto, he howled along to take five for all the neighborhood to hear. <laughs> However, of late, he's less vocal and also less spry, generally less engaged. A few weeks ago, because I decided he needed company, or maybe because I did, Eliza having left us for the other coast, We adopted another mutt, a herder this time. She nips at our ankles and takes Sully's leash in her mouth when we walk, partial to single socks and given to squatting and peeing right in front of us like it's performance art. (laughs) Skinny young thing, she kept slipping out of her collar, brown, until Fred, ever resourceful, poked through the leather with a lobster pick to make a new hole. She's an anxious creature, can't seem to settle. Sniffs at my heels as I write, half circles my chair, paces behind me, puts her snout in my lap. When I finally look up, she cocks her head as if to ask why we're sitting around. Are we going to waste the whole day or what? I pick up Roxy's collar in both hands, and Elfie sniffs, grabs hold, and hugs. We face off then, I very stern. She duly admonished. Except she's not one to give in easily, no, and she cannot resist a tentative lick. Not that she knows it's a collar, or whose, or to pay proper respect, nor does she think it's her mother. Oh, no. It's me she looks to, and waits on, and loves. Thank you. Bye. Violet. Okay, so I'll give you one more. You know what I'm going to do? I'm just going to give you the, um, I'm going to, so I really, I really do think if you read this book, you should read it in order. <laughs> but, um, but I'm going to read you the last, the last 
chapter, really, the epilogue. I'm going to read you, so this is, the book is over, um, but I'm going to read you the epilogue. Um, let's see, what do you have to know? Uh, just so, so you, you've met Fred and Eliza and Jake, um, I, I think, you know, there are, I refer to some of the objects that are, that are in the book, in the epilogue, um, but this is, the, this is the very end. What if I'd chosen other things? I could as easily have picked my grandmother's tennis bracelet, which I wear with the little black dress, or the pot of hibiscus out there on the deck, a substitute for the one that I moved from the east side to the west and back again when I lived in Manhattan, or the circle of sea glass, heavy and green, the lip of a bottle Fred found on Kingsbury Beach in Wellfleet and passed on to me for my collection over there on the floor in a big black glass jar. So many jars, come to think of it. Such a variety of containers. A tin bowl big enough to bathe a baby in, and we did. A basket I found on a side street in Hollywood, sturdy enough to hold logs by the hearth. A ceramic wine pitcher, a gift from a waiter in a tiny restaurant on the edge of the Campo di Fiori in Rome. The late 80s it was, and us just married. I'd been cast on a television show that shot all over Europe, and people, friends, and strangers kept giving us things. We gave each other things, too. Fred bought me a slim painted box in Budapest, and in Malta I found him a pair of lions, lacquered squares with heads and manes, big enough to hold stamps or paper clips, meant to suggest the original cats, the ones outside the library on Fifth Avenue where we each of us worked for a friend whose wedding present to us was a framed poster. A building to celebrate, it reads, in honor of the 42nd Street branch, which turned 75 the year we were married. And it hangs in our living room in the, on the ups, over the upside-down break front, which is one of the objects in the book. Presence. There's a category unto itself. For instance, my stepfather's fedora. Do you like it? Take it then. Or the beaded bag given to me by Ella, his mother, for whom we pretend Eliza wasn't named, because Jews don't name babies for the living, except when a person is beloved and nearing 93, and then some of us do. <laughs> The Eames chair in my office, from Leah, of course. Leah's my mother. Purchased before I was born and a bit worse for wear, but one of these days, as with Charlie's piano, we'll have it restored and refinished just so. Any number of books and records and utensils, slightly obscure. The sterling silver dieter's fork, four-pronged, but one of them curls up and around and so limits intake. Two Bakelite napkin rings, a red duck, a green bunny. The shapely brass corkscrew, not a present, not really, though nobody seems to mind that I pilfered it from 1019 Esplanade decades ago. Say, if I weren't about finished, I might explain how in a frenzy I ransacked drawers, cupboards, and shelves for Eliza, who just a few months ago packed up her car and drove to New York, where she's living in a brownstone on the Upper West Side with, among other things, a yellow colander missing its handles, a scarred old kettle, a stack of cloth napkins, three loaf pans, a muffin tin, a red sugar bowl, a pair of candlesticks, and some buffalo china. Which brings me to China. See how one thing leads to another? It's framed, the place, I mean, on the wall in our bedroom. And that's worth mentioning, how Fred took a scissors to a continent, cut China from his father's old atlas, and gave it to me for our bicennial, our 20th, because tradition notwithstanding, we didn't need actual China, because, said he, he'd have taken me to China if he could. And I was as delighted with China in a frame as if he had. Funny to consider... Were I to write about the old atlas, I might find myself yearning for places I only dreamed of going. Whereas to write about the missing page, the framed map on the wall in our bedroom, is to yearn for the road we've actually traveled, which, but for the evidence, China, framed on the wall, among other objects, might also be a dream. This is how it works, isn't it? We attach meaning to things, and things to meaning, endow them one way or another as if to prove to ourselves that we are who we are. This life really happened. We really have traveled this far in time and space. Take the seals. How have I left them out? Three sizes made of pewter. They belong to Fred's mother. They sit on his desk. They comfort and signify, but not just for him. I love them too, for their shape and heft and featureless mystery. And because they remind me, we were on our honeymoon. We'd only just arrived in Big Sur, weren't even unpacked when we decided to take a drive along the coast, and not far from our hotel, we pulled into a rest stop for a better view. 
Next to us there, leaning against an ugly Winnebago, a middle-aged woman, one hand on her hip, smoked and fumed, while her husband just paces away, peered over the guardrail and down the cliffs. We got out of the car. The woman jutted her chin in the man's direction and made a face. He thinks he heard a seal, she said. The man looked back and noticed us then. Come look, he shouted. There's a seal down here. I heard a seal. We've been standing around for a half an hour, said his wife. Nothing down there, not a damn thing. She took a long drag. Politely, we nodded, sheepishly sidestepped over to her husband to have a look for ourselves. He was wearing a baseball cap, I remember, and wire-rimmed glasses and his shirt buttoned high strained across his belly. It's down there somewhere, he said. I know it is. His wife stubbed out her cigarette and with, with one shoe. Let's get going, she bellowed. Come on already, I'm hungry, she said. Let's get on the road. The man frowned at the surf below. I'm sure I heard a seal, he said. You keep looking, he told us sotto voce. I bet you'll see it. He walked back to his wife then, and they both climbed into the cab. And we looked down. The cliffs were vertical and jagged, the water gray-green, violent and foamy, and so many stones glistening and smooth, big black stones along the narrow strip of sand at the water's edge and on top of slabs of rock, too. Stones, huge and wet and glinting in the sun. Just as the Winnebago pulled a bit away from us and onto the highway, they started to move and bark and float. Hundreds more emerged then. More stones swimming out from underneath a ledge. They slipped and splashed into the water. A flock, a pod, a sign it seemed to us. A sign in the parade of signs. A chorus of well-wishers. A harem of seals. Now, this here, this is a dream. We forgot to get married and we never had children. We never got around to any of it. And now, in the dream, he's had it with me. He's leaving, he says. In the dream, I'm 30, 35, 40, 45, 50. That is, I'm as old as I am. The dream is recurring but different from the others, the ones in which I'm lost in the dark, barefoot and trudging uphill or wading through the water with all of my belongings balanced on my head like a picture in National Geographic. This dream, unlike those, is so real, which is maybe why I'm not able to wake myself up. In this dream, he's my very last chance at a real life. He is my real life, and he's walking away. In this dream, though I've shrugged him off half a dozen times during the day, though I've been snippy and critical and rude, maybe because I've been all those things, though I've thought more than once that I'd just as soon live by myself, that way the counters would stay clean and I could be as selfish as I am, it's Fred who decides he can't take any more. In the dream, as in life, he is even and rational and kind. It just isn't worth it. He tells me he's not changing his mind. But, but, I will. We forgot to get married. Can't we get married? Can't we have a couple of kids? Weren't we supposed to have a couple of kids, please? In real life, he saves me then. Don't cry, he says, touching my shoulder. Dinah, wake up, he says. And I do. One evening, not long after Jake had followed Eliza to the East Coast for college, we were driving through Hollywood when we saw this little family, a couple with two babies, standing on a corner near Melrose and La Brea, waiting for the light to change. It was dusk on a Sunday in autumn, the color fast draining from the sky, the storefronts dark and closed, the streets fairly empty. We were on our way back to Echo Park from an event on the west side where we hadn't even tried to have a happy time. We imagined that it would be good for us, wallowing as we were in misplaced and embarrassing sorrow, to get out into the day. Hadn't we known the kids would leave? Wasn't that the idea, after all? Of course it was. Even so, we couldn't accept, not then, not yet, that the house had always been generously sized for just us two. We couldn't know we'd eventually revel, not only in Eliza and Jake's independence, but in our own, rediscovered and restored. But if, if we were a few inches shy of remembering that we'd chosen each other in the first place, that was the point and the reason, we were also utterly in sync, we two, united from the moment we arrived on the other side of town in our desire to go home and continue to feel sorry for ourselves. The party, our party, appeared to be over or happening elsewhere without us anyway. A tenuous connection, I know, but we both, Fred and I, felt all hollowed out that day like defunct pinatas, cracked beyond repair as if constructed from paper mache. And this whole story starts with paper mache. 
But then, there they were, a family of four. Look, I said, pointing with my chin, the best I could manage, as we cruised to a stop. It was windy. The woman's hair blew across her mouth and she let it, both arms wrapped around the bundle on her chest, yellow, pale blue, one hand cradling the infant's tiny hooded head. On the other side of the empty stroller between them, the man held the hand of a toddler, fair like his mother, bouncing up and down. We watched, both of us mesmerized, as the light went green. No traffic behind us, no need to drive on. They have no idea what they're in for, I said. No, they don't, said Fred, but they'll figure it out. And they crossed then, in crooked single file, the man scooping up the boy and waiting for her to go first with the baby, then following behind. Thanks. Thank you, Dinah. Thank you, Sarah. Um, <laughs> that concludes the reading for the evening. Uh, we want to thank the staff at Skylight Books for the use of their facility. Um, and thank you all again for coming out this evening. Um, please stick around and enjoy some cookies and some water and buy some books. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget that you can listen to this and all of our other great podcasts at skylightbooks.com. Thanks again for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.